Hi, and welcome again to Don't Know Beach About History, short histories of Long Beach, brought to you by the Long Beach Public Library. I'm Jeff Whalen, local history librarian at the Billie Jean King Main Library in Long Beach. Today we'll be talking about 1927's brutal and epic swimming race, the Wrigley Ocean Marathon, a savage open water race from the island of Catalina to the California mainland, with swimmers competing for a massive $25,000 prize and how two unlikely heroes swam their way permanently into the record books and ever so briefly into our hearts. Joining me again today is Josh Sanchez, teen librarian at the library. How's it going, Josh? Hey, Jeff. It's great to be back. Thanks for having me back. It's good to have you back. Looking forward to it. Should we tell, Let's tell a little bit about Catalina in case people don't know much about it. it sounds good. Santa Catalina Island, or what we locals call Catalina, is one of the eight channel islands off the coast of Southern California. It's a pretty and popular tourist destination some 21-ish miles from the coast, and most people get there by taking a boat from Long Beach. It was purchased by the chewing gum industrialist William Wrigley Jr. in 1919 for $3 million, back in the days when if you were some rich dude, you could just buy an island. So Wrigley plunks down the three mil for Catalina and starts trying to figure out some ways to get some press for his new baby. Now, Josh, this might be a little before your time, mm-hmm. but in 1926, there was tremendous public interest in people swimming the English Channel. In particular, American swimming gold medalist Gertrude Aderley got press frenzy attention in August 1926 when she became the first woman to swim the English Channel and in the process, smashed all the men's records by more than two hours. When she returned to America, New York City greeted her with a massive ticker tape parade attended by over two million people. So Wrigley figures, hey, Catalina to California is roughly the same distance as the English Channel. Let's do a race right here. And let's do it in the middle of winter so we can totally promote the idea that Catalina is a balmy and sun-splashed year-round vacation destination. So, with a big press assault, Wrigley announces the Wrigley Ocean Marathon, a one-way swim from Catalina to Point Vicente, where the land kind of juts out there a little by Rancho Palos Verdes, a little bit up the coast from Long Beach, with a whopping $25,000 prize for the winner. That'd be worth almost $400,000 today. That's a lot of scratch. Wanting women to compete, and also apparently wanting to make the prizes more difficult to explain, Wrigley also announces a separate $15,000 prize for the woman with the best time, though if a woman had the best time overall, she'd win the $25,000. Josh, does that make sense to you, what I've just said? Um, in terms of, like, the, the words? In terms of the words. The words made sense. Okay, so Wrigley tries to recruit some of the big swimmers of the era, and many sign up, as do some lesser names, including two virtually unknown swimmers, George Young of Canada and Myrtle Huddleston of Long Beach, the two swimmers we'll be focusing on today. Well, the press loves it all, and the race starts to get plenty of national attention. Lots of news stories about Catalina and how lovely it is there all year round, but also stories about how no one has ever swum from Catalina to the shore. And how even though Catalina is indeed lovely all year round, the channel is treacherous with wild riptides and currents, to say nothing of the sharks. And cold? You betcha! The wintertime water in Catalina is about as frigid as the summertime water in the English Channel, which is often in the low 50s or thereabouts. And may I remind you, Josh, that the wetsuit would not be invented until the 1950s. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Speaking of which, one angle the press focuses on is what people will be wearing to swim, especially when one of the favorites to win, New York lifeguard Lottie Shamo, made headlines when she insisted that women be allowed to swim clad only in grease. No suit at all, just grease. In fact, a number of women didn't want to wear bathing suits because the suits chafed and irritated over long distances, and the athletes wanted to feel free and easy and covered in grease. Up until around the turn of the century, women's bathing suits were full-body wool dresses, and you'd swim wearing stockings and shoes. <laughs> and change was only coming incrementally due to community standards and decency laws. When word got around about Lottie Schaml's grease-only idea, the powerful Women's Christian Temperance Union clapped back, <laughs> saying that such a thing would turn the swim into a, quote, immodest spectacle, which caused several prominent swimmers to back out of the race. A number of newspapers reported that unnamed Long Beach authorities were promising that any unclothed swimmer landing on that part of the coast would be arrested. Sorry, the visual of like a greased up, yeah. half dead swimmer yeah. uh, just being chased by the cops is yeah. it's, it's a good mental picture. And spoiler alert, the winner of the race, this person didn't start naked, but they ended naked. So These things always end up this way. You know, we've all been there, <laughs> all right? So William Wrigley isn't a big fan of the grease-only idea either. But when Lottie Schaumel demonstrated how modest a full-body grease-up would actually be, he ended up giving it his neutrality, if not his blessing. He even ordered up 200 pounds of axle grease and 100 pounds of prime lard to be delivered to Catalina for the swimmers, both the naked ones and the ones who wanted to slather it on over their outfits. Lottie Schaumel, by the way, didn't use Wrigley's grease but brought her own bear grease, mm -hmm. 15 pounds of it to use. Now, meanwhile up in Canada, 17-year-old George Young is getting ready too. An up-and-comer, George was favored to be a big medal winner at the next Olympics in Amsterdam. But George didn't want to wait for the Olympics. $25,000 was a lot of money back then, even in Canadian dollars. And George wanted to buy a house in California for his ailing mother. So he and his friend, who was 19, and also the owner of a third-hand motorcycle with a sidecar, they sell everything and get ready to make the trip from Toronto to Long Beach. And what a road trip for the teens, Josh. Cruising across the USA in a motorcycle with a sidecar in the 1920s, just burning down the highway, cranking ain't we got fun. But, <laughs> but their chopper breaks down in Little Rock, Arkansas, and destitute and without any other good options, they sell the motorcycle and decide to hitchhike. Incredibly, they're picked up by a honeymooning couple on their way to sunny California. And before you can say, yes, sir, that's my baby, George is back in business. Now, most people training for the event were doing so from Long Beach. One such person is 30-year-old Myrtle Huddleston, a Long Beach hairdresser and single mom of an 11-year-old boy. Myrtle, and this is true, had learned to swim only just that previous summer in an effort to lose some weight, which was causing her some health issues. And so she starts to swim a lot. And one thing she notices is that no matter how long she swims, she never gets tired. And another thing she notices is that no matter the conditions, she never gets cold. One day, Myrtle's out swimming in the ocean by the Pine Avenue Pier. And it's one of those days, one of those clear days, Josh, where you can just see out forever. Mm -hmm. And she looks out, and she sees Catalina just sitting there. And she thinks, I bet I could totally swim out there. And when Wrigley announces the marathon, just a couple days later, Myrtle sees it as a message from God. So she quits her job, and she banks everything on winning the race so she can send her boy Everett to college. Dick Rutherford, the athletic director of the exclusive Pacific Coast Club, reportedly sees her swimming and was so impressed with her that he asked to be her trainer for the race. 
which she welcomes because all these fancy swimmers are in town getting ready, training in high style, and the competition is fierce. As Myrtle told the LA Times, some of the men now training for the big swim have been told to eat 40 eggs a day and four pounds of steak. I have to eat what I can, when I can get it. Josh, do you think the people were told to eat 40 eggs a day? I mean, yeah. Do you think people were told to eat four pounds of steak? You can convince people to eat anything if you have enough confidence. Okay. So word starts to spread in Long Beach, and Myrtle's cause catches the attention of Lulu Straw, Long Beach's first and only at the time policewoman. And Lulu organizes some fundraising for Myrtle and gets her some positive ink in the local papers. And so, on the foggy and cold and not particularly lovely morning of January 15, 1927, the Wrigley Ocean Marathon began. With about 5,000 fans assembled on the shore and surrounding hills, 102 entrants got greased up real good, and the gun went off, and the race was on. Each swimmer was assigned a convoy boat that would make the journey with them. On each boat was an official observer and a couple members of the swimmer's crew. The swimmer was not allowed to touch the boat or anyone on the boat, or they'd be disqualified. The first swimmer who was disqualified and needed rescuing was a guy named Philip Moore, who wore six long sleeve thermal shirts, each one individually and heavily greased up, as well as three pairs of thick wool thermal bottoms, also greased up and tied at the ankles with a rope. And then he covered everything with an inch thick layer of rendered beef fat. Phil lasted seven minutes before he was pulled from the water. Was he serious? <laughs> Not with those layers. That's 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 joke swimming. Yeah, it's like you're like a human croissant at that point. Other people started out stronger, but let's not be under any illusions, Josh. It was brutal out there. Even though it's 21-ish miles as the Gulf lies, it's virtually impossible to swim straight there due to the area's strong and unpredictable currents. And it was super foggy, and many swimmers got lost. Dozens of contestants swam around aimlessly or in circles for hours trying to locate the dim glow of the Point Vicente lighthouse, which everyone was using as a guide to the shore. Swimmers weren't allowed to touch their convoy boat, but they were allowed to get sustenance, which as far as I can tell were usually liquids like hot chocolate or beef broth delivered by tube to the swimmers. And boy, oh boy, did they need it, because grease or no, it was 54 degrees in that water, and that's no good. Swimmers started dropping out quicker and quicker. The youngest entrant, 14-year-old James Compton from Long Beach, who I was rooting for, by the way, had lasted only a few hours. American Henry Sullivan, who had successfully swum the English Channel, was pulled from the ocean about 12 hours in, saying it was, quote, a hopeless task. Peter Meyer from Cincinnati battled heroically. He, along with our Canadian friend George Young and Olympic gold medalist Norman Ross, were looking good for a long time. At one point, Meyer was just a mile and a half from shore before getting swept back several miles. He got knocked around by the cross currents and ultimately ended up swimming an estimated 38 miles before succumbing to cold and exhaustion without ever reaching the shore. Three women had ended up swimming in the race clad only in Greece, among them the Greece-only advocate Lottie Schammel. She had to be pulled from the water nearly against her will midway through the race as her leg had cramped so badly it had swollen to almost twice its normal size. The grease that had completely covered the swimmers at the beginning of the race was almost entirely gone by the time people started getting pulled out of the water, exhausted, delirious, crying, screaming, or babbling nonsensically about a fire as one swimmer did. The ship, the SS Avalon, was one of the main steamer ships that took tourists from the mainland to Catalina and back on normal days. But for the marathon, the Avalon was pressed into service to pick up swimmers in need of rescuing. A wire report describes the scene on the Avalon at around 4 a.m. thusly. 
The hospital bay on this ship was a tragic sight, with rows of exhausted men and hysterical women resting in pathetic postures, their futile attempt to win the big money prize at an end. But George Young, our 17-year-old Canadian friend, just kept chugging along. With only a few miles left to go and Point Vicente's lighthouse tantalizingly close, George got tangled up in a big crazy clump of kelp. In the ensuing panic struggle, he had to take off his trunks to get free. And on he kept, stroke after agonizing stroke, until finally he reached the shore, Josh. A crowd of thousands of waiting spectators at Point Vicente greeted George with cheers, and he raised his arms in victorious triumph as he emerged from the water just after 3 a.m. and was quickly wrapped in a blanket to cover his business. I'm not sure if the Long Beach police were there and prepared to arrest him or not, by the way. George had won. He'd swum an estimated 30 miles. It had taken him 15 hours and 44 minutes. He was the first known person ever to swim from Catalina to the mainland and the only swimmer to reach mainland in the Wrigley Ocean Marathon. A Los Angeles Times headline called it the greatest achievement in the history of aquatics. Two days later, there was a big official presentation of the prize money in giant novelty check form at Grauman's Egyptian Theater in Hollywood. And for a few weeks, even a couple months, George was a household name. Virtually every newspaper story about him at the time predicted a long and super fun career full of success and fame and movies and vaudeville shows. But none of the movie deals or vaudeville plans panned out and George headed back to Canada. He never again did anything on the scale of his Catalina swim. He ended up as a Canadian park ranger at Niagara Falls, which, you know, sounds pretty cool, actually. He's in Canada's Sports Hall of Fame and the International Swimming Hall of Fame, almost entirely due to his Catalina triumph. But what about Myrtle, Josh? What happened to Myrtle Huddleston, our Long Beach single mom and hairstylist who had just learned to swim? What happened to Myrtle? Well, she had done pretty well in the marathon, actually. Better than most, certainly. But Myrtle had succumbed to cramps miles from her destination. Two other women had gone further in the race, one of whom was Margaret Hauser of Long Beach, and each had received $2,500 for their efforts from Wrigley, who was bummed that no women had completed the journey. And though Myrtle had failed this first time, she knew she could do it if she tried again. She could. And so, a couple weeks later, on February 5th, 1927, Myrtle again took off from Catalina. For the next 20 hours and 42 minutes, Myrtle battled the intensely frigid water the wind, the fog, swimming hard against an unyielding tide. Things had started out great, and for the first four or five miles, Myrtle was coasting, doing a steady two miles per hour-ish. But when she got further out, a vicious current started knocking her around. The water temperature sunk to 45 degrees in some areas. Myrtle had to start swimming faster, not only to fight the current, but just to keep warm. Her right leg cramped up badly and was virtually useless for hours. About halfway across, well, Josh, let's talk about sharks. Let's get into it. In the water in Southern California, you got some sharks. Mm -hmm. You got your blue sharks, Mm -hmm. your makos, Mm -hmm. your great white sharks. Yep. Josh, did you ever get worried about being eaten by a shark? No, because statistically, you're more likely to be attacked by a deer or a cow. That's true. But there are sharks in the water, Josh, and people are pretty anxious about it. Some swimmers of the marathon, including George Young, smeared graphite on top of the grease as a shark repellent. And I don't know if that works, though I do know that's not a thing that people use now. Now they use dead sharks or secretions from the hagfish to repel sharks. Oh, cool. Anyway, so there's Myrtle about halfway across the channel when she's attacked and bitten on the arm, on the torso. Bite, bite, chomp. She's fighting this guy off, but it's not a shark, Josh. It's a barracuda. That was a twist I did not see coming. It continues to harass her for some time until she's finally able to fight it off 
But now she's bleeding and her suit is ripped. She's got puncture wounds on her arms and body. An early report in the Long Beach Press-Telegram didn't call it a barracuda right away, by the way. They said she was attacked by a belligerent fish that was scared away by her screams. <laughs> That's what it said. <laughs> okay. Highly scientific reporting. And then here comes the fog, Josh. Thick fog, thick, and just ridiculous. They can't see the lighthouse, they can't see the shore, and they get lost. They're just swimming and paddling around randomly. Hours go by, Myrtle swimming randomly in the fog, bleeding and in pain from barracuda bites. The strong current just shoving her wherever it wants to shove her. And then, naturally, she gets separated from her boat. And for a terrifying half hour, they cast about in the foggy dark until they find each other again and get back on track. That last stretch, especially the last quarter mile, Myrtle was in some serious trouble. Delirious and sobbing, hysterical. The New York Times described her as being in a state of semi-coma. She wasn't using her legs anymore at all, and her arms were just slowly, just ever so slowly doing the trudging stroke. At one point, Myrtle was just using one arm to swim. One of the observers in her convoy boat dove into the water to swim beside her the last bit. The New York Times casually said she was given a stimulant a few hundred yards from the shore, which best I can figure was a half pint of whiskey, as reported by the Los Angeles Times. Huh, okay. Yeah, because it's not a stimulant. When at last, at last, she arrived on shore, she collapsed, delirious, unable to move. One of the observers on her convoy boat, Charles Toth, who had swum the English Channel, yelled, She did it! It was a remarkable feat! I don't know what he sounds like. He's American, so probably not like that. Or maybe, who knows? Maybe he was doing an English accent. Myrtle continued her swimming heroics for the next several years. She competed in races and swimming endurance contests as much as her body would allow. She was the first person to swim the width of Lake Tahoe and was widely regarded as the world champion endurance swimmer. Her ultimate record was 87 hours and 48 minutes. Myrtle attempted to swim the English Channel in 1929 but had to get pulled from the water after 21 hours with seven miles still left to go. Myrtle remained the only woman to swim the Catalina Channel until 1952. As for Everett, Myrtle's son, did he get that education she wanted for him? Did he? He sure did, Josh! Everett graduated from high school and then got a degree from Western Electrical Technical School in Chicago. He joined the Army and became a career guy there. Tragically, Myrtle died at the age of 39, almost exactly 10 years after she crossed the Catalina Channel. The cause was pernicious hypertension, a cardiac condition no doubt aggravated by the incredible stress Myrtle had put her body through. After her feats of endurance, she'd very often have to be hospitalized, at least once in critical condition, and she'd lose as much as 25 or 30 pounds during the events. But even if George and Myrtle didn't reap a life full of reward for their accomplishments, consider being a broke, fatherless 17-year-old from Canada with a sick mom and hopping in that sidecar of your buddy's motorcycle and heading down to Long Beach with the idea of doing something no one's ever done before. Not just competing against all these accomplished adults, but doing so with the intent of winning. And then actually winning. And winning greasy with your shorts off. As for Myrtle, her story is even more incredible to me, even in spite of how things ended up. Being a single mom at a time that was not single mom friendly and having that responsibility to carry all by yourself, to be panicked about the future for your son, no money, food insecurity, and then to find a hidden talent, something you're really, really good at, something you never even tried before, and then taking that talent and yourself to the absolute limit, not really being sure of what your potential is, but being sure you're going to find out. I mean, that's kind of incredible to me. Swimming the Catalina Channel remains a highly regarded feat, 
and is part of the Triple Crown of Open Water Swimming and the Ocean 7 Marathon Swimming Challenge. Despite its difficulty, it has become more commonplace in the 21st century. I think they kind of got it down to a science now, when to go, how to work the currents, as opposed to the people in the 20s who just jumped in and started swimming, like our heroes, George Young, and especially Myrtle Huddleston of Long Beach. And that's it, Josh. That's the story of 1927's Wrigley Ocean Marathon. Josh, what did we learn today? We learned that you never stop learning. Yeah. That you can learn something new at any age. Mm-hmm. You know, age is just a number. Mm. Uh, and the eternal, endless slog to the grave. Sure. There's always time to shove something new in there. Yeah. Thanks for coming with me on this adventure, Josh. Thanks for having me. Thanks for joining me today. Mm-hmm. Okay, we'll see you next time, everybody. Bye. Watch out for sharks. <laughs> see ya. <laughs> <laughs>